Welcome to the Calvary Assembly podcast with weekly messages from Calvary Assembly of God Church in Lexington, Nebraska. You can find out more online at lexag.org and on Facebook at Calvary Assembly Lex. Thanks for listening. We're excited this morning. We have a missionary with us, Jason Giesemann. It's been a a long time coming trying to get him here. We uh, had to change his booking one time, and then he got COVID one time. We had to change it then. So we're glad he's here. He's with a group called Hope Fostered, and I know some of our CASA workers are going to be really excited about this, but they help with foster care through churches, uh, getting churches involved in foster care. So he's from Kansas. We love him anyway. So I'm going to, I'm kidding. He's, he's, not a, he's not an oaky, so he's all right. So we're going to give a big Calvary welcome this morning to Jason Giesman. So would you welcome him with me? Thank you. I know it's because I'm from Kansas, right? No, uh, we almost had a good day yesterday in Kansas. Almost that close. And for us, that was a really good day already, right? You know, you mentioned from Kansas, it's a little further south than you guys, and, and I noticed that a little bit this morning in worship, because while you guys were saying nothing is better than you, I was singing nothing. And it's just a slight, slight change, you know. So thank you, Pastor Rex, Pastor Amy, for, for inviting us to come and share with you. Where are my CASA workers at? There's one back there. Awesome. CASA makes a huge difference. There you go. Huge difference. Uh, we have always loved the CASA workers that worked with our foster kids, and they have always done an incredible job for us. And so thank you guys for volunteering. That is a volunteer job working in foster care. All right. So they do a great job, and we really appreciate them. Also want to send you guys... Uh, um, last month, was it last month? What month are we in? Yeah. Uh, last month, I was in Springfield, Missouri, being commissioned as a, a fully appointed U.S. missionary, and we were having a meal with the chaplaincy department, and we sat down across from this couple that I'd never met before, never, I don't know if I've ever seen them before, and we got to talking, and it ended up being Josh and Emily Hubble, who we already prayed for this morning, and so I've been, you know, messaging with them this morning, hey, I'm at your church, and, and they're all excited, and so uh, just wonderful couple, uh, really enjoyed getting to know them, and so which tells me this is a missions church. When you have multiple missionaries coming out of your church, it's a missions church. That heart is birthed in there somewhere. Uh, my church, my home church in Manhattan, Kansas, which now you're confused because Manhattan is home of K-State, and I was talking about KU earlier. I am not from Manhattan. I was moved there by God. <laughs> kind of like Jonah and Nineveh, right? Okay, right? Um, so uh, my home church, Manhattan First, has multiple missionaries out of it. In fact, you may know uh, someone, he's, he's not a missionary, but he actually works with your district, Scott Mersh. Yes, I mostly blame Scott for where I am today, for being here, because Scott was actually one of my predecessors at Manhattan First. I was the children's pastor there for six years. He had been there like 20 years earlier than that, right? And, but he had started this thing called Royal Family Kids Camp, 
How many of you guys heard of that? Yeah. See, you guys, you, you, we're, we're on it this morning. Sometimes I have to explain every little thing I talk about to the church, which is fine. That's what I'm here for, right? Uh, and so, so he started that, still going strong 20-plus years later. Well, that was my first ministry with foster care, was volunteering at that Royal Family Kids Camp. That's grown into, obviously, me being up here. Uh, we, we ended up mentoring one of the kids in, from our Royal Family. Then we ended up becoming foster parents. Now we've, we've got two biological kids and three adopted kids. And we through, adopted through foster care. And, and then, of course, God has led us to be uh, U.S. missionary chaplains to foster care with the Assembly of God. I'm going to explain a little bit later what that means. But, uh, again, I'm a, I'm a former children's pastor, so I'm going to tell you some stories, if that's okay. All right. And this morning, I know oftentimes you get a missionary, and he, they're there. You want to know what they're doing, right? And, and we'll get into that a little bit. But I, I've never been a good missionary. Just, just be honest. I don't like asking for money. I do it because I have to. <laughs> I want to feed my family, right? <laughs> I don't want to do the missions. And, and you'll notice I'm here alone this morning without my family because my family, you know, as a kid, you're, you're raised in the church and you think, oh, every missionary, like, they all match in their dress, it's suit coat, and nice shoes and dresses, and they all sit real nicely along the front row. If my family were here, the front row would be all crooked already, right? One of the first missionary services we had, and I usually don't tell this story, I, I told my wife, hey, bring the baby up. He was a baby at that time. Now he's a three-year-old monster, right? Seriously, he's the, the size of a five-year-old but acts like a three-year-old. You get it. All right. I said, bring the baby up. She's like, are you sure? I was like, yeah, yeah, bring him up. This is going to be great. Because it was a two-service church, and the first service was traditional, which older people who love babies. So she brings him up, and our other four kids are sitting there not knowing what to do. So they randomly and sporadically join us on stage. And I speak a little bit, and I hand the mic to, to my wife, and she starts speaking, and I turn around, and the kids are running throughout, the, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I turn around to get the microphone back in my chest, mid-sentence of what my wife was saying. She proceeds to run off the stage and out the door. The baby had exploded. <laughs> Meanwhile, my kids, not knowing what to do, see their mother leaving through the back, so they proceed to not gently walk down the stairs. They proceed to jump from the stage, which is about this high off the ground, into the altar. Well, of course, they go and sit down, right? No. They proceed to run through the altars. Dear Jesus, I had to stop. And I had to excuse myself, and I had to scold my children in front of all of them. And they were so gracious. The people were so gracious. The pastor was a former missionary. He completely understood. And I was like, oh, we got to figure something out. <laughs> but that's my family. And so when I come to churches, I, I, I want to share with you what God's doing through us. But what God does through us hopefully, is affecting what God is doing through you. And so my, my challenge today is not, hey, come alongside us. It's, 
how can we come alongside you? I want to share with you a story of a young lady named Sally. Uh, Sally was raised in an Assembly of God church. Uh, she came, her family came on Sunday mornings, uh, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights. Uh, her dad helped lead a ranger program. Anybody know rangers? Yeah, yeah, one well, half. Yeah. And her mom was a, a missionette leader, and Sally was a missionette back when it was missionettes. It's like got three different name changes since then, right? And Sally was well on her way to becoming an honor star missionette. Now, if you don't know missionettes, let me tell you, honor star is it. That is the top of the top, and there's a lot of work to get to that. Sally knew where her hope was. Sally knew where that she was protected, that she was comforted. She knew peace. She knew who God was from her family and her experience in the church. When Sally was 12 years old, all of that came crashing down around her as her dad left her and her mother for another woman. Now, I don't know if you've ever broken a vase. Again, I'm a children's pastor, so I like object lessons. But this is an expensive object lesson and messy, so I'm not going to do it. But if I had a vase here and I threw it on the floor, it would shatter, right? And no matter how many of us got together and tried to put all the pieces back together, even if we had the right glue and all that, we still would not be able to put it back the way it was. Well, that's where Sally found her life. It was like a vase shattered on the floor. She began to try to piece things back together, but no matter what she did, there were still cracks. So she, she tried to start feeling with, with, with things that, that we, as people, do. With drugs, alcohol, with men. By the time Sally was 18, she had a son of her own, and, and she loved her son dearly. And she wanted to give him everything that she could. The problem is we can't give what we don't have. So the love that she had once known, she no longer had. And though she wanted to give that to her son, she couldn't. Peace, safety. Comfort. I liken it to this. I'd like to tell you, Pastor Rex, that this morning, Hope Foster is going to give you guys a million dollars for this church. What a beautiful church it is already. You imagine the ministry you could do with that. Problem is, you can't give what you don't have. Sally wanting to do the best for her son, kept trying to find ways to, to do these things for him, but she kept finding herself in the, the same issues she'd been in, the drugs, alcohol, men. And she would do what I call hitting the reset button. You see, what happens is, is once things get to a certain point and a certain mess, a certain amount of chaos, what will often happen is you'll move from one area to a next, and that hits the reset button. Because nobody in the new area knows you, none of that's with you, except for it all follows you. So what all really happens is you go from, from, from a known place with known problems to a new place with the same old problems. And Sally would do this quite often, and finally she decided once that uh, when hitting this reset button, button and moving to a new place, she was going to drop her son off at her dad and now stepmom's house. 
A couple months later, Sally gets a phone call from the county hospital. Sally, come quick. Your son's been hurt. Sally drives there not knowing what's going on, and she's met at the hospital doors by the social worker. Now, I love social workers. But if I'm going to the hospital because my child is hurt, I do not want to be met by the social worker. There's not very many people who I can think of who I'd want to be met by less. Because that means not only is he hurt, but something evil happened to get it there. She walks in, they sit her down in a private room, and they say, Sally, here's the deal. Uh, Your son broke his arm. Uh, Right away, the doctors knew it was broken in a way that could only be done by a In further evaluation of your son, the doctors and nurses noted some burn marks on the back of his neck. Come to find out, um, Sally, your stepmom, was using her hot curling iron to punish your four-year-old son. Sally, we can't send your son back home. But Sally, we also know what you're dealing with. And we know we can't send him back home with you. It was at that moment that Sally heard the words that no parent wants to hear. We're putting your son in foster care. At this moment, Sally was at a crossroads. What to do? I want to share with you the story of another young lady. I call her a young lady. We don't really know how old she was. Uh, if you want to find her story, it's in John chapter 4. Being good, uh, biblically literate church like you are, I'm not going to go into too much of the, the, the theological in, 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 um, details on it, but, but we find ourselves at the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. You guys have heard the story? Yes, well, let me, let me share it, the uh, Jason Giesman paraphrase here for you. But before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of context. This is historical, right? Um, the well that we find Jesus and the Samaritan woman at is called Jacob's Well. It's called Jacob's Well because it was dug by Jacob. I heard it in the back. Good job. Former children's pastor, you get a piece of candy. It's fake, sorry. <laughs> I pretend to. Jacob's well, dug by Jacob. Well, Jacob was not around in the time of Jesus. In fact, he was around hundreds of years prior to Jesus. And Jacob's well was dug in the middle of a desert, not in an oasis. In fact, if you go back to the story of Jacob and his sons digging Jacob's well, you will find that the people of the day would see them digging the well and laugh at them and mock them and call them names and ask them, how stupid can you be? And Jacob said, we're just going to keep digging. Why did they keep digging? Why did they pick that spot? Because God told them to. Finally, a hundred feet deep later, that's a lot of digging, A hundred feet deep later, there's water. That well is still active today. Just just think about that. If you get nothing else from my message, get this. Obey God. 
You see, obedience does not require understanding. It just requires obedience. Can I tell you, God, he could, but he won't perform miracles if there is no obedience. Look in the Bible. Show me one miracle that there was not obedience required before God did it. Never. In fact, a lot of people asked. Never did he give understanding before he gave the miracle. Obedience. So if you hear nothing less, obey God. So Jacob and his sons obey God. They dug the well, and they dug it in a place that ends up becoming uh, a, a popular place in the area because it has the best water and the most water. So in Jesus' day, here's what the Jacob's well would look like on a daily basis. In the morning, the, the Israelites of the area would come to the well, and they'd get their water for the day, and they'd be playing and talking and having a good time, a time of fellowship. And then they'd go back home and go about their business, right? That happened in the morning. Well, in the evening, uh, another group of people, the Samaritans, would come to Jacob's well and get their water, and then they'd go back home, and it just is very similar to what you see with the Israelites. Now, I'm a, a fairly logical and well-reasoned man, so, so I'm like, well, there must be logistical reasons, because you can't have that many people at the well at once, so you have to separate it out. That's not why they did it. They did it because in those days... It was against Israeli religious law for Israelites to have any type of relationship with Samaritans. In fact, we find in the Bible that if, if an Israelite man or woman was walking down the street and they see a Samaritan coming on their side of the street, the Israeli must cross the street and walk down the other side. You could do a whole sermon on bigotry right there, Right? That's not our point today. So we have these separation. And can I tell you, really, the only reason that I can find that they would not like the Samaritans is because they weren't Israeli. But can I tell you, the Samaritans believed themselves to be descendants of Jacob. But they couldn't prove it. They had many of the same customs, they worshipped the same God in many of the same ways, but they had to do that separate as well. So here, we're at Jacob's well, not in the morning, not in the evening, but at noon. Now, can I be transparent? I'm going to be, whether you say yes or not. I used to skip that part. It was a throwaway detail. Like, that doesn't mean anything. No, I didn't understand. Why would it be important for the writer to put noon? Some translations will say the sixth hour, but all Israeli scholars say that's noon. And why was she not, she was a Samaritan, why was she not with the Samaritans? I can tell you, I, again, I'm not an expert in Israeli culture or customs, but I know some people who are, and here's what they tell me. 
The noon hour was important because at Jacob's well, even today, that hour is considered the hour of shame. So here we have a Samaritan woman full of shame. And here's how I see this story playing out. As she walks down to the well, her eyes down, her shoulders slumped, dragging her, her, her vase or her urn or whatever it was behind her to fill with water. She gets to the well just like any other day, full of shame, drops it in. And then she hears a voice of a man who, when she looks up, realizes is Israeli, and probably because the, the, the teachers of the Israelis dressed a little differently, she could probably tell pretty quickly that he was a religious man as well. You know what that is? That's three strikes. And she looks, she hears him say, can you get me a drink of water, please? And and her response is she looks up and she sees this man and she goes, don't you know who you are? Now, hold on. I want to remind you, she looks up and sees Jesus Christ, the omniscient one, all-knowing, and says, don't you know who you are? Okay, come on. The Bible's funny, and I think that's one of the funniest ones, and maybe I just didn't lay it out right, but come on. And he responds, and again, this is my version. Oh, sweetie, if you only knew. And they begin to talk about life and politics and religion and, and all these things that are going on in her life. And, and, and she forgets to feel the shame just lifting from her. As for the first time in a long time, someone really wants to have a real, actual conversation with her. Not judging her. Just a real, compassionate, loving relationship. Finally, Jesus says, you know what? Let's, let's at least follow one of the cultural customs. Go get your husband. At that moment, the shame pours over her again. I, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right, you've had five. And the man you're with now, you're not married. And something changes in her. Because when he said that, he wasn't saying it in condemnation and judgment. Like a lot of times we like to do. Well, now we're going to point out your sin. No, he said it in love. And mercy. And compassion. And she looks at him. And in the NIV it says she calls him a prophet. But again, this is my version. So if, if, if we had a Jason Giesman version of this story or an Assembly of God version of the story, here's what I believe it would say. She looked at him and said, you are a man or a woman of God empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because how can you know exactly what I need when I need it? How can you know that and still look at me with love and grace and mercy, mercy and compassion? 
only through the power of the Holy Spirit can we as fallen people look at someone like that. Shame. When working with foster care, you find a lot of shame. Some people might call it guilt. There is a lot of guilt. But more than that, there's shame. And there is a difference. I want to talk a little bit about foster care right now. In uh, the United States, there's over 450,000 children in foster care right now. Uh, In... In Nebraska, there's 3,535 children in foster care at this moment. What does their life look like? Most of them have done nothing wrong. Most of them have just survived in a very difficult situation. Most of their parents also survived a very difficult situation of abuse and neglect. Most of them are like Sally. That the way they love and take care of their children is the way they were taken care of. And quite frankly, most of the time, they're doing a better job than their parents did. I want to share with you just for a moment what it looks like when a, a child gets put into foster care. What happens, and, and, and it, it's slowed down a little bit with COVID, but it's picking way back up, as expected, now that kids are among mandatory reporters again. See, the abuse didn't slow down. It actually ramped up. And so what we have is we have these kids who have lived through things that we can only imagine most of the time and wouldn't want to. And they've been hurt and they've been left to their own. My son, to this day, I will not close his door because most of the first five years of his life, he lived in a closet. So these kids, their situation gets reported to to the authorities, to DCF or or child services, and they investigate, and if they find cause, they come, usually with a police officer, and these caseworkers doing the best they can have to pack up all these kids' stuff, but most of these kids don't have a suitcase. So the caseworkers use what they can which is usually a trash bag. And they, they take their stuff and they, they go to uh, sometimes to the police station, sometimes to the, the caseworker's office, and they just sit there and they're just waiting. And all they know is they can't live at home anymore. And for a night or two, they may go live with a family or, or they may have to find other arrangements. Sometimes, I'm sure you've heard, where they might have to sleep in the office. I know of one area where they, they were sleeping in the police station in the interrogation rooms on a cot because they had nowhere else to put them. So these kids in their trash bags full of their worldly belongings are moved from place to place 
from home to home until they find a home that will take them longer term. Are these kids grateful to be in these new homes? Absolutely not. Are they excited to to go to a home that is hopefully loving and structured and disciplined where you have a bedtime, where you have vegetables to eat, where you have to go to school, where you have to go to church? So they're already surviving this, this dramatic trauma because being removed from your family, no matter how bad the family is, is a trauma. And we want them to act like good little kids. And we take them to school. And they have behavior issues at school. Remember my, my son? Every time someone went to the door, walked through the door, or walked by the door, all of his alarms in his brain went off. He was not feeling safe in his school. He was safe at his school, but he was not feeling safe in his school. Well, add nine paras to that room, in and out throughout the day, plus the fact it was a glass door, and they were right by the restroom and water fountain. Have you ever been to an elementary school? (laughs) There's always someone going to the bathroom. Constantly, all day long, his alarms were going off. These kids have lived through things that we, again, many of us can only imagine. And if we've lived through some of it still, they have lived through it day after day after day after day. And all they need is someone to say, I'm here for you. I can help you. Harvard did a study of former foster kids. They, they, they surveyed thousands of former foster kids, and they broke them into two groups. And I'm going to tell you the two groups are basically this. Those who have become productive members of society and those who have not. And as they asked these questions, for those who had become productive members of society, they looked through and they studied and they looked and they found one common denominator. You see, each of those kids could point back that they had one, at least one, healthy adult relationship in their life as kids. It didn't even matter how long that adult was in their life. Just the fact that they got to see what it looked like was enough. It wasn't a guarantee, but it was enough. And so we go around and we encourage churches and people to say, we can do something. You might have heard that in the One Hope video. They stole our thing. No. We can all do something. You see, when I get up here and I start talking about foster care, I know a lot of you are like, oh, we cannot bring children into our home. Yes, you're right. Don't do it. Unless God tells you to. Then you better obey. And I can help you do that. But I also know, for those of you that God's not calling you to ask, that doesn't mean you don't have to follow James 127. James 1.27 says that, again, this is the Jason Giesman paraphrase, that there's no more pure relationship with God than to take care of who? Widows and orphans. 
Now, does that mean people who have lost loved ones? Absolutely. But can I tell you, in our culture, we currently have 450,000 plus orphans. Many of them from families of what we would consider widows, single moms, trying to make it through but unable. In Dawson County, Nebraska, uh oh, he's bringing it home. 52 children in the foster care system. What are you, what are we doing to help those kids? What are we doing to help kids from brokenness, from abuse and neglect and trauma? And what are we doing to help their families? I'm all about, hey, if we got to change a family tree at the kid, let's do that. But if we can change a family tree with the adults, that's so much better. It's hard, it's messy, and you're going to get hurt. Not you might, you are. But I seem to remember somebody coming, giving up their home, when it was hard, it was messy, and he was going to get hurt. And he did that for me. So I want to encourage you today. We've got our booth back there. Come look at it. You can get on our newsletter. You can find our information. You can go to our website, hopefoster.org. Pretty easy, all spelled one word, right? Watch our video about more stuff that we do. You can see my family on there. They're in the video. You can see the craziness, right? But God is asking us all to do something. And my concern is not necessarily what is he asking you to do, but it's how can I help you do it? I want to finish up just real quick with Sally's story here. Remember, she was at a crossroads she didn't know what to do, and so, so we, we learned of Sally, and, and we were able to connect her with a, a lady in her, a local church in her community, not her local church. She didn't go to church. And this lady called Sally and said, Sally, here's what I want you to do. What I, I want to do. I want to offer this to you. Come to church with me on Sunday. Afterwards, I'm going to take you to lunch, and we can talk about what they've said you've got to do to get your son back. And I'm going to see how I can help you. Well, Sally, not having many other options, and again, <laughs> everything she tried so far hadn't worked, decided, okay, let's try it. She was probably hungry, <laughs> to be honest. So she went to church that morning, sat with the lady. They went to lunch afterwards, and from that lunch, this lady was able to help Sally to do the top three practical needs in Sally's case plan. She was able to help her find a job. She's able to help her find an apartment. Before they found an apartment, she had Sally live with her. It's not easy. Again, we don't ask everybody to do that. She also helped Sally buy a vehicle. One of the things that we don't think about is a lot of these families don't have cars, so they can't get kids to appointments or school or things like that. They did those few things... 
And as they did that, it went from let's figure out what these, these, these needs that you have are and figure those out to what are some of the bigger things. And they began to build a relationship. And the relationship looked a lot like this lady helping Sally as she went through rehabs, as she went through the down times. She went through the storms and helping her navigate what that looks like. And, and this wonderful woman did a, such a great job, and they became so close, and they became friends. And through this relationship, Sally began to see who Jesus really was again for the first time since she was 12. You see, through this relationship, Sally began to see hope. Through a woman empowered by the Holy Spirit. Someone to come alongside her. Sally ended up giving her heart to Jesus. And, and though Sally still has struggles, last time I talked to Sally, I said, how you doing? She says, we're doing it. Jesus and I are doing it. I realized when Jesus called us to do this that this was a, I mean, we can't reach 3,500 kids in Nebraska. We have a hard enough time reaching the five in our own house. I said, God, I, I can't do this. He said, there's more you can do. And I said, I, I can't. And he said, would you stop being so self-centered? I'm not talking about you, Jason Giesman. I'm talking about you, my church. Is there more you can do? And I am here to tell you that answer is a resounding yes. There is more. You see, I cannot bring hope to all these kids in foster care. But we, you guys here in Dawson County, can bring hope to foster care in Dawson County. The churches can bring hope to the lost in your community. And I just want to see how I can help you do it. Separately, <laughs> we can't. It just can't be done. It would take a miracle. Oh, wait. But we don't have to do it alone. Together, that's how we bring hope to foster care. Thank you guys very much. Thank you, Pastor Briggs. So what a great challenge. How many of you can take a kid into your home? Uh, a couple of you. How many of you can be that person in someone else's life? Yeah, all of us can, right? We can all be that person in a kid's life. We can all be that for a parent. So if you're physically able this morning, would you stand? We're going to pray this morning. We're going to say, Lord, would you make us that person in someone else's life? Would you send me? And God might be speaking to some of you about bringing a kid into your home. God might be speaking to some of you about being respite care workers. God might be telling you to go talk to Linda and get involved in CASA. So she's ready. So, Lord, we thank you this morning that we can't all do everything, but, Lord, we can all do something to bring hope. And, Lord, all around this room this morning, I pray that you would speak to hearts, 
Lord, you might be speaking to some of us about a, a single mom or a single dad that we can encourage and we can help. You might be speaking to some of us about bringing kids into our homes. Lord, would you speak to us about that? Lord, you might be talking to us about a neighbor or maybe a kid that goes to school with us who's in foster care that we can encourage. But Lord, would you help us all to be obedient, to do whatever it is you're calling us to do, to be your hands and feet to those around us every single day. In Jesus' name. I mean, we're gonna...